We're going to be in the book of Exodus today, so uh, I invite you to turn to Exodus. If you're uh, new here or new to this whole Christianity thing or just kind of checking things out today, that's the uh, second easiest book of the Bible to find. It is the second book. So Genesis, then Exodus. And Exodus is a story about how God redeemed his people um, from slavery. They were slavery in uh, the country of Egypt. And God shows up and speaks to Moses in a burning bush. Maybe you're familiar with this. Says, Moses, I have a task for you. I'm going to use you to deliver my people out of slavery in Egypt, which they had been slaves for 400 years. So through a series of plagues that we've gone through, and then the final one of those being the Passover, we talked about that last week, the Egyptians are finally leaving Egypt. We'll pick up right after Claire ended in our scripture reading in verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both herds, uh, flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. Nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt were 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. We're going to cover quite a bit today, um, probably four or five chapters. And so we're going to just take snapshots through it. Fast forward in your Bible to the next chapter, chapter 13 and verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see, the war, see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not depart before the people. And so in the middle of the night and without even a dog growling at them, Israel begins their great escape. And you may have noticed several things in this passage. And we're going to get through the text and we're going to make some application to us along the way. One, you may have noticed that they're accompanied by an untold number of Egyptians. Representing God's global blessing that he had promised to Abraham. That through Abraham's seed he was going to be a blessing to all people. They have a huge material wealth representing God's abundance to them. They had never, can you imagine as slaves, had never owned anything of their own, much less any kind of jewel or anything worth anything. And yet at the very end, as they're leaving, they have this huge material wealth. They also have Joseph's bones representing God's faithfulness to his promises. And they have a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire representing God's presence. And there were things that the Israelites could see clear as day, and there were many things they couldn't. 
just as God works in our lives. There's things that we can see, we can see what he's doing, and we have visible reminders of his faithfulness and his grace to us, and they're all around us. Sometimes we're moving at uh, a pace too fast to recognize, or we're too self-absorbed to recognize. Some of the things they could see certainly was Joseph's bones. This was a miraculous in and of itself. This was a 400-year-old promise. Though my family had come to Egypt, Joseph says, there's going to be a time in the future when they return to the promised land, and when they do so, take my bones with you so that I might be buried by my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the promised land where we belong. Another thing they could see is Egypt in the rearview mirror. Escaping from Egypt is just the most unbelievable thing. Again, we're not in that context, but you can imagine it would be like a hillbilly militia with pitchforks taking on an army with tanks and assault rifles. No way the hillbilly militia wins that fight unless God's on their side. They could see the gold and silver of the Egyptians fulfilling again what God had previously said that they plundered the Egyptians in verse 36. They could see the cloud of God's presence, literally Yahweh God, the one that appeared in the burning bush to Moses, now appears before them in this pillar of fire and of cloud. And it wasn't two different things. It was a cloud that uh, appeared as a cloud by day, and that cloud would illuminate itself with fire so that you could see it by night. Wouldn't you like a divine cloud to lead you everywhere that God would have you go? Well, you would until the cloud took you in a way you didn't want to go. But, and I say that emphatically, there was a lot of things the Israelites couldn't see. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Exodus is about God making himself known. Remember when Moses saw God appear as Yahweh and the burning bush and his question is who do I tell them is sending me he didn't know God necessarily remember in Exodus chapter 5 Pharaoh didn't know God he said who is this Lord the Israelites didn't remember him they had the same question who is this God that is telling us of uh, that, that is going to orchestrate this escape God's making himself known but not just aware of his existence God is teaching them to trust him. Trust even when it doesn't make sense. The Apostle Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians 5-7 describing the Christian life that we walk by faith and not by what? Sight. The cloud was taking them the long way around, we see in that passage. It was taking them into a dead end with the Red Sea in front of them and a hard-hearted Pharaoh behind them. Look at chapter 14 and verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. God ordered them to do a uh, turnaround. They had gone one way and passed it up. And here in chapter 14, verse 1, God says, you know what? I want you to turn back and put yourself in the, mo the most exposed position possible. No securities around you. No way of escape. With the Red Sea in front of you and the Egyptians behind you. There was a big highway in the day, a trade route called the Via Maris means by way of the sea. And if you were going to go out of Egypt 
and you were going to end up in Canaan, you would go just right along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and you could get there in about two weeks. Do you know how long it took the Israelites to actually get to Canaan? 40 years. So the pillar of cloud took them on quite a circular path initially, and then because of sin, they wandered in that little wilderness for some 40 years. But here it was God's mercy, not to get ahead of ourselves, though the most direct route was the Via Maris. God said that if they went that way, they would have met the coastal people, those were the Philistines, and they weren't ready for battle. And those people were ready, the Philistines were. The Israelites the scripture says, would have been so scared because of war that they would have found their way back to Egypt. And it was the Lord's mercy that took them on the longer path, though they may not have seen it. Don't you know that that's how God works in our lives? That he sometimes takes us the long way because it's not just about the destination where we're going to end up. It's about the lessons that we're learning about the character of God and fellowship with him and the fruit we begin to bear along the way. And our industrialized, Americanized minds, we think just the shortest route, the most efficient and effective route, and God doesn't work that way. His timetable is so different than ours, so different that he would have Joseph sold into slavery and spend decades there, his entire, the pr entire prime of his life. Can you imagine Joseph thinking while he was in prison, man, God must have forgotten me. God must not know I was living an upright and life of integrity, and yet I'm suffering, and God has not shown up. And all the while, God is doing something that Joseph knows nothing about. That if he had not been sold into slavery, he couldn't have worked his way into that position to save not only Egypt, but the people of Israel. This is really a question about church, about trust. Church. Would you trust him? Do you trust him? Even when things don't happen as quickly as you'd like, even when things get worse before they get better, even when you pray and pray and God does not heal or act as you had hoped, even when God asks you just to stand there and wait on him. I mentioned a few weeks ago a quote I read by John Piper that said God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of two or three of them. I cannot get away from that quote. Every time I question the hand of God in my life over the past few weeks, I'm reminded of this, that God is sovereign and good and loving, and he is working everything out for my good and for his glory. I've had that fall backwards most of my life. I thought if God was doing 10,000 things in my life that I knew about 9,997 of them, and there may be a few on the edge that I don't know exactly what God's doing, and that is pretty arrogant and foolish of me. Chapter 14 and verse 3. For Pharaoh will say to, of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land because they had gone and turned around. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Church, when God guides us, he means it to be a journey of faith and not by sight. Though we wish he would just give us the fork in the road and the writing in the sky and tell us exactly what's coming next, that's not the way God works. Looking back, we might be able to trace his hand, but looking forward, Spurgeon says we must trust his heart. 
They didn't know what sort of man Moses was. They didn't know what was happening when they had to make bricks without straw. They didn't know what God was up to with the plagues. They surely didn't understand why they're supposed to camp between a hard-hearted Pharaoh and the Red Sea and do nothing. Pick it up in verse 10 of chapter 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. This is still the most mighty army in the world. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, it is, because there are no, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us this way into the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? Did they say that? No. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in this wilderness. And, peop- and Moses said to the people, you might underline this, man, what a powerful verse. Fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work out for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Is that not the scariest verse you've ever read? You have only to be silent. Most of us don't do very well waiting on God especially again in our culture and the way we were raised, certainly it's in me to, to sit and do nothing, even if God's asked me to do that, is the hardest thing in the world. I'm the guy that uh, if, if the interstate is stopped and it's only a five-minute stop, I don't want to wait. I'd rather do a 45-minute detour so I can keep moving because the last thing I want to do is wait. You know the story, right? The Egyptians rushed in. As Israel was walking through the Red Sea, the water closed in over them. Pick it up in verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is a big day for them. Right? This is a big day. They begin to worship. Flip over to chapter 15. The lesson that they learned at the Red Sea is that we should trust God to protect us. Chapter 15, verse 1, this is their response. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. You can imagine, right? The people of Israel having walked through the sea. What an incredible miracle that would have been. And it said not only did they walk on the marsh, but they walked on dry ground. They get to the other side, the Egyptians rush in, God lets the waters fall back, and God wins the battle, and all Israel has to do is walk. And afterwards, they have a party, as you likely would too. And all of them are singing. In verse 20, Miriam, Moses' sister, it says, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took her tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with their tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Ladies, I want to see this at our ladies' retreat. We're going to bring a bunch of uh, tambourines. 
What a sight. You get the, you get the gist of where they're at, right? They're, they're praising God for what they've just seen him do. If only Sinai was next, but it wasn't. There are a few more stops along the way to be made. Not just because God's wasting time, because he's teaching them something. The next stop is a place called Mara. Verse 22 of chapter 15, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. When they came to Marah, they couldn't drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Note the opposite of the first plague of the Nile turning blood. Moses would raise his staff and the water that was once fresh in the Nile River turned into some blood-like substance and couldn't, be, couldn't quench their thirst. And here the opposite happens. They come upon some water being thirsty. You can imagine seeing it off in the distance and some of the young ones running up ahead to get water. They had had water in three days only to get up there and find that it's brackish water, salty water, water that could not be drank. They cried to the Lord. Moses put a log into it and it became sweet. Continue in verse 25. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all the statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians for I am the Lord, your healer. That word could be the Lord, your restorer. The Lord who restores. The lesson is that testing often follows triumph. You ever experienced this after some kind of mountaintop with God and you saw God do some incredible things in your life only to be followed with a season of testing and difficulty? As to keep us from getting proud, season of testing seems to follow seasons of triumph, as John 15 talks about. Seasons of pruning seems to follow seasons of fruitfulness. Again, God's trying to teach them to trust him. This is what it means, God is saying, as he reveals himself to them. This is what it means to be part of my family. I protect you from your enemies. I know what you need. I'm here to restore you. They then make a little stop in paradise. The end of chapter 15 talks about this little place called Elam. It's this resort, basically, with 12 springs and 70 palm trees. In the middle of the desert, in the middle of the wilderness, there's this resort. And they stay there for several weeks. All the while following the cloud and the fire. And when God moves, they move. And when God stays, they stay. Chapter 16, verse 1. This is that feeling when you leave the perfect vacation. And they set out from Elam. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came into the wilderness of Sin. Hasn't anything to do with the concept of sin. It's just close to Sinai. 
It's between Elam and Sinai. And on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, so 30 days they'd been gone from Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Such a change of heart. Their first grumbling begins in Mar that we read a minute ago, three days after the victory in the Red Sea. That they move from a heart that praises God to one that grumbles against him. And at that point, there was just a few possibly grumbling. It makes this point in chapter 16 that now the whole congregation of the people is grumbling. From God as a God of war and salvation is his name that they claimed. He is my strength and my song too. Man, I wish we were still in slavery. I wish you wouldn't have even showed up. Remember back in slavery where we had the big pots of meat? They're at some Brazilian steakhouse. People coming with big shanks of lamb that they're eating to their full. This is what they remembered. But of course, that was not the story. That's what nostalgia does to us, does it not? It makes us remember the past as better than it really was. As when you talk to people from other generations and they say, oh, man, the good old days. Oh, you mean the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis and interest rates at 15% so no one could buy a house? Those are the good old days? No, 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 no. Back before that, oh, no, the good old days. Oh, the, the era of Nixon and Watergate and the scandals. No, 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 the good old. Oh, you mean World War II. Those are the good old days. No, 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 before, World War I. That's what you mean. Those are, we could keep going, right? We remember the past with this sort of nostalgia, not as it actually was. And this is what they're doing is they're saying, man, if we could just, man, those big pots of meat. What is it that took them three days to start grumbling? God answers their need with turning the water sweet in Marah to now, 30 days later, the entire group is grumbling against Moses. Well, when you think about the Israelites, I think there's, some similarities to us. One, they didn't know where they were. We have a hard time when we don't know where we are. Perhaps if God or Moses would have laid out a map or itinerary for them, if they would have had some sort of syllabus that this is what we're going to try to accomplish before the days, I guess, of MapQuest. Maybe if they had a MapQuest that they could find out how to go. Maybe they could look at their phones and have some kind of understanding of where they were. Maybe they wouldn't have complained so quickly, but they didn't know where they were. Slavery in Egypt became attractive because that's what it meant to live by sight. This Yahweh business is living by faith. Can you imagine that they had rather take the slavery they knew than the God they didn't? They didn't know where they were. They didn't know why they were there. What we'll find in this initial wilderness wandering is that the Israelites grumble and grumble. They never grumble against God directly, but don't think that God was fooled by that. Maybe they felt that wasn't appropriate. This is the God that they just saw bring the plagues. We're too spiritual to grumble against God, so what we're going to do is grumble against Moses. 
What is Moses thinking? You and I, maybe we find that that's the people that we grumble to. It's people around us. It's to our friends and our spouse, leaders, the authority in our lives. We begin to grumble. Why do teenagers start having a hard time understanding their parents? Why do teenagers, we got some teenagers in here, why do you grumble against your parents? Why is it that when a young person turns 13, their parents automatically become dumb? It's amazing how it happens in sync. The moment that they turn 13, their parents start getting dumber, infinitely dumber. There begins to be this lack of trust. It seems to culminate at a senior in high school when they are the smartest that they've ever been. Certainly, it's true of me. It's one thing to do a hard thing when you know that the person you're following is doing the right thing and you have complete trust in them. I may not know what they're doing, but I trust that they're doing what's best. And you do it, and maybe it hurts, but you keep doing it. But when you lose trust, grace turns into grumbling. Can you see why grumbling is such a sin? No matter who you are directing it toward, your leaders, parents, whatever, It's ultimately a grumble about God. God, you can't be trusted. You don't do all things well. You don't know what you're doing. You haven't thought through any of this, have you? The Israelites didn't know where they were. They didn't know why they were there. They didn't trust the one who was leading them. They didn't like their circumstances. And now they're facing a new adversary. Church, there's a difference between groaning and grumbling. You know that, right? The Bible is full of groaning. Romans 8 says that we groan along with all creation to be set free from the bondage of decay. A groan says to God, this is really hard. A grumble says to God, you are really hard. A groan says, God, I would like a different circumstance. A grumble says, God, I wish you were someone different. There are lots of groans in the Bible. I love as you walk through the book of Psalms to see how honest the psalmist is. And he is honest with his feelings and what he's thinking. He's crying out, God, where are you at, man? How long are you going to tarry? When are you going to show up? He's honest in his groaning. But have you noticed almost every one of those psalms of lament end with him reassuring his hope in God? Yet I will trust you. Yet I remember what you've done in the past and I put my hope and trust in you that you are my refuge. I understand this. It's not wrong to groan. Man, life is hard. Can we be honest? We live in a a broken world, in a broken society. Many of you have taken steps into the foster care system and you just see brokenness all around you. You watch the news and you see brokenness. You, you try to have a healthy marriage and you see brokenness, right? Yours and your spouse's. Then you have little kids and automatically you begin to see their brokenness. It's okay to groan. It's okay to be honest with God about what you're feeling and the, and the idea of, of groaning. But it's not okay to grumble. Grumbling is a sin that we universally disliked in others And invariably approve of in ourselves. It's so easy to spot in others, right? We see it in your kids. Parents, you've had this experience. You take your kids on a wonderful vacation. I mean family trip. A wonderful family trip. (laughs) It takes lots of your time and energy and money. And 
You sacrifice all year. You're going to take them to Disney World or Great Wolf Lodge. You're going to go to the beach. And what happens? I don't think it takes three days for them to start grumbling and normally three minutes. Why do I have to sit here? When are we going to be there? I'm so hungry. Tell them to quit touching me. That's my iPad. There's nothing to do back here. I tell my kids all the time, like, we had no devices growing up. Well, what did you do, Dad? We looked out the window. That's all you had to do. And my parents actually had one of those station wagons that you, you know, you just sit in the very back seat and you don't even, you can't even read the signs. You see the back of the signs, right? Grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. You're driving and you're saying, man, I love family trips. We're making memories. <laughs> I remember one great day uh, in the summer that we're at the pool, and my oldest, Claire, she was two or three, is just throwing a fit of all fits. I mean, yes, I mean, a fit of all fits. I was embarrassed. I didn't know what to do. Well, Ashley wasn't backing down. And she is uh, <laughs> threatening spanking our kid. I mean, whatever, like, you know, anything that you can threaten. And she yells at the top of her lungs, we're going to enjoy our day at the pool, dang it. <laughs> I was like, hey, babe, I'm going to take her home. I'm going to take her home. We see it in our kids, right? They're grumbling people. We notice it so easily in others. Maybe difficult for us to notice it in ourselves. Grace becomes grumbling so quickly in our kids, and let's be honest, parents, even ourselves. When do we grumble? Kevin DeYoung says it this way We grumble when neither past provision nor future promises have any bearing on our present pain. We grumble when neither past provision, we've forgotten what God's done in the past, nor future promises, we forgot what he promised us in the future, have any bearing on our present pain. In other words, we've forgotten everything the Lord's ever done for us. None of that matters in the moment. We forget all that he's done. We don't think any about his future promises all the things that he promised to do to be with us, to never forsake us, to give us an inheritance, any of that. We don't know anything about our past. We don't know anything about our future. All we can think of this right here I'm walking through is painful. It's incredibly human and we all do it. What God wants us to do, what he's teaching the Israelites and he's teaching us, is to remember that all the history of grace in the past, to believe all those promises of pleasure in the future. It's not going to eliminate all the groaning, but it's meant to mitigate it for sure. When we grumble and complain, it distorts the past, it ignores the future, and ultimately it dishonors God. At the heart of hearts, when we grumble, we're saying, God, you don't know what you're doing, or we're saying, God, you don't really love me. The Israelites are a grumbling people. They grumbled when Moses came to save them. They grumbled at the banks of the Red Sea. They grumbled when they didn't have water to drink. They grumble now that they're hungry. They're a nation of whiners. 
But their grumbling, they're directed again at Moses, and Aaron was ultimately against God. Look at that. Maybe you missed that in verses 7 and 8. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you the evening meat to eat, And the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Moses and Aaron, incidentally, are really wise. And maybe we would do well to imitate them when we had encounters like this. Or when your kids become upset with God-given rules that you've laid down. We might follow their example that, They don't personalize the grumbling. They're not offended or upset necessarily. They just say, who are we that you grumble against us? We're just following the cloud like everyone else. We're telling you what God tells us to say. My dad used to say that all the time when he was preaching a hard message. Don't get mad at me, get mad at God. A complaining spirit indicates that something is not right with your relationship with God. Though you might direct it at your spouse, you might kick the dog, direct it at your kids or your parents, someone in authority, in essence, you're saying to God, God, you're not taking care of me. You're not looking out for me. You're not listening to me. I don't believe that you're really working all things out for my good. You're not interested in what's best for me. I don't know what you're doing, God, and I don't trust you. Grumbling dishonors God and it expresses either explicitly or implicitly that you don't trust God. Again, this is different from the groan, a humble lamentation, a cry that this hurts, that this is painful. This is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about rebellion against God. Not that the situation is hard, but that God is hard. The problem with complainers is they don't really trust that God's big enough to help them or good enough to care. That's what you think when you complain. This God? I may say that I believe him and sing all the songs about him and even read the Bible about him, but I don't really believe that he's big enough to do anything about this or good enough to even care about me. So we complain. It dishonors God. That's the problem. What's the solution? Church, the solution is that we would trust God. When things get dark, when things get heavy, as Jonathan Edwards says, when we walk through the dark night of the soul, when we're confused, when we're bewildered, when we're walking through people that we care so much about and they're walking through the hardest times in their life and God is not doing what we think he should do, we've got to trust him. Pick up with me again in 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, I think it's verse 4, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it'll be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. God's about to rain graham crackers from heaven every day. Enough to fill a two liter bottle. 
and double that on the sixth day. And this is where we see the institution of the Sabbath. We're going to talk more about that in the future. God's saying, hey, you can trust me to protect you. You can trust me to provide for you. You can trust me to rest. Do you think Jesus had man on his mind when he was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount? When you pray, here's how I want you to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Not our weekly bread or monthly bread. Not enough for the year or the next, but for today. Or how about when he said, don't worry about tomorrow, saying, what shall we eat? I think he's got manna on his mind, just like in the wilderness. You wake up and ask the Lord, can you give us enough to eat today? And you walk out and there it is. And by noon, it's burnt away. Just when you're anxious about tomorrow, Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. God tells the Israelites, there'll be bread there again. Our problem is that we don't really believe that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. We fail to believe, to really believe that his mercies are new every morning. When we demand a blueprint of his grace ahead of time. God, I want to see next week's graces now. I want to see tomorrow's mercies today. Man, the manna was so cool today. And the last 20 years, it's the thing I've eaten all my life every morning. You've been so faithful. I walk outside, there's the manna on the ground. I get it. But what about tomorrow? Are you, are you going to come through tomorrow? God says, you don't get it. The whole nature of this thing is walking by faith and not by sight. What is worry and anxiety except living out the future before it gets here? Going ahead to tomorrow, three weeks from now, four months from now, ten years from now, wondering what your kids are going to be like and what your marriage is going to be like and if you're even going to get married and how's this going to happen? How's this illness going to work out? And what's the di- uh, what about the diagnosis might say as we're waiting on the results? We try to borrow mercies from tomorrow that God has not yet meant for us. Listen, church, here's the message. God says to us that we can trust him. He is faithful. And even when things don't work out like we think, we've got to trust that God is sovereign. He knows way more than we ever could. And he's doing what's best for us. He's given you bread and mercy for today. And when you get to tomorrow or a year from now, his grace will be there. His mercies will still be new. Whatever trials or surprises are there, they're not surprising God. He'll give you some more manna for that day. Friends, can we just trust him for protection, for rest, for provision? Will you trust him? If there's anything that Palm Sunday tells us, It reminds us that no matter how different, we tend to resist having any sort of king. We still think it's all up to us. God, forgive us for that mindset. That it's in submission to Jesus that we find true freedom and make him king. I'm going to pray for us. and Weston's going to come up and lead us through communion. As you sit there, would you just talk to God? Maybe it's very apparent that your sin is one of grumbling, that you grumble against God and you doubt his power and provision. Maybe it's one of rest. We didn't get too far into that, but God wants us to rest. He's given us the gift of rest to set apart a day, one out of seven, 
and rest. Maybe it's just the whole trust thing. That's just walking by faith. It's just so, so hard. You'd rather than the nostalgia of the past. Man, if we could just go back to those meat pots. And you miss what God's doing right now. God, thank you for the gift of your grace. I pray as we take communion in just a moment, Father, that we would see you, the Son of Man, lifted high calling men unto yourself. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.